You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, copy editor for the U.S. Lighthouse Society and award-winning volunteer for Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. Today is February 20th, 2022, and this is episode 161 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we're going to hear about the history and preservation of Bolivar Point Lighthouse near Galveston, Texas. And later we'll have another Be a Lighthouse segment. How's your winter going, Cindy? Well, it's pretty mild here, I have to say, at my mom's in Tucson. It usually, um, yes, it actually gets down into the 30s overnight most most nights, but it's actually 60s or so during the day. So I really can't complain about the the winter here. Um, And also a pair of great horned owls just started nesting right by us. So that's really neat. That is really cool. But my mom said uh, they they come back every year around this time to to nest and have their little outlets and and do their thing. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Wildlife wise, we've had bobcats around here recently mm. on the Hampshire Sea Coast. There's a lot of sightings of those. Uh, Charlotte, my wife, saw one uh, near our home not too long. Oh ago. wow! And uh, weather wise, it's been an up and down winter here. It's like it's uh, fifty or fifty five one day and and five the next. Is that yikes. You know, <laughs> You know how typical New England winters are, but we're only a month from the official first day of spring. Mm -hmm. I'm looking forward to a busy season of lighthouse visits and events. So, Cindy, has anything interesting happened on this day in lighthouse history? Well, yes, as a matter of fact. Half Moon Reef Light was one of the many screw pile type lighthouses built on the Texas Gulf Coast. During the Civil War, the Confederates darkened its light to aid the escape of Southern blockade runners. The light was relit on February 20th, 1868. In 1978, the lighthouse was given to the Calhoun County Historic Commission, and it was transported to a new location in Port Lavaca. Of more than 100 screw pile lighthouses that were built in the 19th century, Half Moon Reef is one of only a few that survive and the only one on the Gulf Coast. For listeners who might not be familiar with them, screw pile lighthouses originated in England in the 1830s. The foundations stood on iron pilings, which were twisted or screwed into the seabed. The first screw pile lighthouse in the U.S. was Brandywine Shoal Light in the Delaware Bay, which was built in 1850. The only one that survives in its original location is Thomas Point Shoal Light in the Chesapeake Bay, which uh, we featured on this podcast a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about Bolivar Point Lighthouse and today's guests. Sure, Jeremy. The port of Galveston, Texas, which was established in 1825, eventually became the busiest port on the Gulf Coast and the second busiest in the country after New York City. Bolivar Point is at the southwestern end of the Bolivar Peninsula, marking the east side of the entrance to Galveston Bay. The first lighthouse on the point began service in late 1852. The 65-foot-tall cast-iron tower was dismantled during the Civil War, leading to the building of a temporary wooden tower in 1865. In 1870, Congress appropriated funds for a new cast-iron lighthouse. 
The model for the rebuilding of the lighthouse tower and keeper's house was Louisiana's Pass Alutre light station, which had a tall 117-foot tower and a wooden keeper's house. The third order Fresnel lens was first illuminated in the rebuilt Bolivar Point Lighthouse on November 19, 1872. The light station weathered devastating hurricanes in 1900 and 1915. Following the destruction of the 1915 storm, two new dwellings were built for the keepers and their families. The houses were built on iron pilings to keep them above any future storm surge. With an increase in the intensity of Galveston Jetty Lighthouse in 1930, Bolivar Lighthouse was considered expendable. The light was extinguished in May 1930. The property was transferred to the War Department. Then in 1947, the War Assets Administration sold the property for $5,500 to rancher E.V. Boyt. In 2015, descendants of the first private owners of the light station property created the nonprofit Bolivar Point Lighthouse Foundation to address the restoration and preservation of the lighthouse and to make it open and available to the public. Amy Maxwell Chase is the executive director of the Bolivar Point Lighthouse Foundation, and Mark Boyd is a founder and board member of the organization. Both Amy and Mark are descended from the original owners of the light station. I had the pleasure of speaking with them recently via Zoom. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking today with Amy Maxwell Chase and Mark Boyd of the Bolivar Point Lighthouse Foundation in Texas. Thank you so much for joining me today, Amy and Mark. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. So, Amy and Mark, I, of course, want to talk about your long uh, family association with the Lighthouse. Uh, we'll get into some history of the Lighthouse itself also and about, about its preservation. But let's start by talking about your family history. How did uh, each of you, and you can uh, decide uh, which one of you wants to go first here, but how did you become involved with the Lighthouse? Well, Jeremy, uh, Amy and I are both the grandchildren of the original private owners. My grandfather, Evie Boyt, acquired the lighthouse property in a public auction in 1947 from the United States uh, government. And his brother-in-law, George Maxwell, uh, wanted the other half. So they split it up uh, at that time. And uh, we've been joint owners. uh, The families have been joint owners of the lighthouse uh, ever since. Amy, do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, I'm just blessed that my papal and mamal um, shared this property. It's It's been in our family, like Mark said, since 1947, and it's been a blessing for us to be able to grow up down there um, and experience all that she has to offer. So we'll get back to that in a while, maybe uh, talk a bit more about your personal associations with the lighthouse. But let's talk about the history of the site, of the light station, Bolivar Point Lighthouse. The original lighthouse was established on the point in 1852. Why was the lighthouse needed there in the first place? Well, uh, Texas was a new uh, entrance into the United States of America. Galveston is a major harbor and probably the largest port west of New Orleans in the Gulf. The Bolivar Point light, when combined with a light on the tip of Galveston Island, creates a range marker uh, for the ships coming in. Uh, They line the two lights up to hit the entrance of the channel. And the first lighthouse, uh, the 1852 lighthouse, didn't last long. The Civil War got in the way. What, what happened in the Civil War there? Well, the, the story goes is that the materials were needed for the war effort, for the Confederate States war effort. So it was deconstructed to not allow the Union to have it as an observation post and to, uh, you know, for the materials. Iron was in short supply. 
you had the uh, Confederate uh, Lighthouse Service for a few years there that ironically uh, dismantled some lighthouses and <laughs> hid some of the Fresnel lenses and so forth. So there was a temporary tower for a while following the Civil War. Well, yeah. present lighthouse was built in 1872, right? And what are some of the interesting things about the lighthouse tower itself? The current tower built in 1872, which was really shortly after the Civil War. So this is the federal government once again, you know, committing real dollars to the southern states uh, in reconstruction. It's, you know, much taller than the original tower. It's 117 feet at the lens level, you know, the spire and the very top would be a little higher. It can be seen quite a ways offshore. And, you know, as a day mark or at night, you know, you line the Bolivar Lighthouse up with the end of the Galveston Island and you hit the entrance to the channel. So uh, the coast of Texas, uh, when seen from offshore, is incredibly uniform. It all looks the same. And that's why so many of the early explorers got lost looking for the Mississippi River, because from seaward, there's no distinguishing landmarks. And so a tall tower used as a day mark or as a lighthouse is very effective in helping the mariners get into the channels. It's a very tall cast iron lighthouse, as you said, 117 feet. Uh, I think it's one of the tallest cast iron lighthouse towers around. Let's talk about the uh, the history of the storms there, which has played a big role in the history of that place. There were two, especially two major hurricanes, 1900 and 1915. The Galveston Hurricane of 1900, uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are familiar with it, one of the most famous or infamous storms in American history. What happens at Bolivar Point Light Station during the Galveston Hurricane in 1900? Well, it's well documented, and there's great books on the Galveston 1900 hurricane. It's the worst natural disaster in United States history. Over 6,000 people died as a result of the storm. And Bolivar was not spared. Uh, it was there in the in the brunt of it. The surge flowed over the peninsula, and it reached about six feet deep inside the lighthouse. The keepers, their families, a number of local residents, and then a group of people from a passing passenger train all sought refuge in the tower and rode out the storm, a terrible day and night, riding the storm out. And the folks on the train... A good number of them decided not to get in the lighthouse and rode the train back to Beaumont, and they never made it. It's uh, the worst rail disaster in United States history. Also occurred at the same time right there. I mean, it's a terrible story. A lot of people were trying to get to the lighthouse and couldn't get in. Uh, they found several bodies in the yard the next day. And then 1915, you have a re repeat. Uh, mm -hmm. The storm was just as bad, but Galveston had built a seawall. So there was not a lot of loss of life in Galveston Island proper. Yeah. But in Bolivar, it was just as bad. The uh, the keepers' houses were destroyed. The oil house was destroyed. Uh, a number of local people sought refuge in the tower once again. I think even more people were in the tower in 1915 uh, because there had been a shrimp canning factory built in Bolivar, and those families came to the lighthouse. Uh, hmm. So a large number of people. The head keeper for both storms was a man named H.C. Claiborne. Wow. And he was just legendary in the lighthouse service as being one of the best keepers. And the Coast Guard has named a large buoy tender after him that is now uh, part of the Coast Guard station in Galveston. Mm -hmm. So it's a good tribute to the lighthouse service and, and Mr. Claiborne and what they did during those storms. There was an assistant keeper in 1915 named 
J.P. Brooks, who turned the light by hand when the movement of the top of the tower got violent and they couldn't use the wind-up mechanism. And his grandson is a singer-songwriter uh, out of Dallas, uh, also named Justin P. Brooks. And he's written an incredible song about the 1915 hurricane. Uh, mm. I'd encourage folks to look up Justin Brooks' uh, hurricane song. It's really good. Called Candle by the Shore. Okay. We would love to have him and his current band uh, come for some fundraisers in the future. Yeah, well, I hope so. That sounds great. So moving ahead in history a little bit, can you tell me about the accidental shelling of the light station station in, uh, in 1917? <clears throat> yeah, 1917. So the Coast Guard was in the process of building new residences for the keeper and the assistant families. And the Army in Galveston, there's a fort. there was a fort on the east end of Galveston Island. And they accidentally shelled the light station with practice rounds. Uh, thank goodness they weren't explosive rounds. One landed in the yard and one landed uh, in the tower. It pierced the tower about 20 feet up on one of the plates. And you can, you can see the patch on the inside where they patched it. But it, it shook them up pretty good because, uh, you know, there was no way to call them off. Uh, there was no way to contact the fort in Galveston uh, at that time to tell them to hold their fire. Wow. That could have been pretty bad. Wow, that poor light station has been assaulted by nature and by by humans. Uh, to be pretty frightening uh, for all those. Uh, Have you ever run across another instance of the government shelling a lighthouse? Yes, <laughs> just one. <laughs> um, actually, my good friend uh, Simon Ponsart Roberts, who grew up at lighthouses in Massachusetts, when she was a little girl, she was a Cuddy Hunk Island off Cape Cod. Uh, at the lighthouse there, her father was the keeper, and they were having a birthday party out in the yard for. I think it was a cousin of hers and uh, the uh, military, this was in the forties during world war two and the military, uh, the Navy, I believe it was actually was uh, doing bombing uh, practice. <laughs> they were, they were supposed to be dropping the bombs on some, a place called no man's Island near there, a deserted Island near there, but somehow they got confused and they dropped the bombs on the wrong Island. And they were uh, coming down in the yard by the lighthouse and this, this poor family had to scatter and, you know, run into the house and uh, none of them exploded on impact. And luckily nobody was hurt, but uh, she posed next to a bomb on the dock uh, near the lighthouse. And uh, shortly after that, the military called and said, don't touch those bombs. And they came and picked them all up. Turned out they were alive after all. It's so lucky that none of them exploded. They got lucky both times. Absolutely. So uh, before we move on, is there anything else that stands out for you related to the keepers and families who live there over the years? One of the assistant keepers in 1918, uh, wife and infant daughter died of the influenza epidemic, mm. and they are buried on the grounds uh, somewhere, and we don't really know where they're buried. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just supposedly near the lighthouse. Yeah. That's yeah. as much as we know about it. The light was deactivated in 1933, if I have that right. Why was the light deactivated at that time? Well, budget budget problems during the Great Depression. Uh, it was deemed unnecessary because of another light that was, you know, on the South Jetty. But the maritime interest in Galveston really fought it. And, you know, Amy's done some research that, you know, their local folks got really upset when they were going to put the lighthouse out. And uh, they, they, they stalled it for a couple of years. But then ultimately it was, you know, it was in the cards that the Coast Guard was going to shut it down. And so in 1933, it was deactivated. The property was turned over to the uh, War Department and they housed Army families here from the 
local fort. There's another Army fort, coastal uh, artillery battery in uh, on the Bolivar side, and some of those families lived here. The Coast Guard did operate a navigational beacon until 1956. Electronic navigation aid uh, was operated from the yard, but uh, the lighthouse lens and the mechanism and all that got crated up and sent off to a federal warehouse. Before we move on to more modern history, there's one, one other historic event in uh, 1947. <laughs> Can you tell me about the Texas City Blast? What was that? Yeah, so the Texas City Blast uh, occurred just a few months prior to our families acquiring the property. Same year, uh, there was a ship docked in the docks at Texas City, which is directly across the bay from us, that had a cargo of ammonium nitrate, among other things, and a fire broke out. And as they were fighting the fire, they didn't know what the cargo was, and it all exploded, you know, much like the warehouses in Beirut that blew up a couple of years ago. A devastating explosion. It's the worst industrial accident in United States history. Uh, 581 dead, including 113 missing and 63 unidentified. Those people were just blown up completely. Uh, 1,700 people were hospitalized, uh, 2,000 people were made homeless, and there were actually two ships that blew up. There was the first explosion, and then several hours later, there was a second explosion. One of the anchors was blown a half a mile from where the ship was. So brutal explosion, and it damaged the masonry in the lighthouse. It It shook a big hole near the base inside the tower. And then all the glass that was remaining was gone uh, in the houses and the lighthouse. If there was glass remaining in the lighthouse, it was gone after that explosion. Sounds comparable to an atomic blast. Well, incredible. people remember what happened in Beirut just a couple of years ago. Yeah. And so it would have been real similar to that. This is uh, for both of you. I'd like to get back to your personal associations with the lighthouse. I'm wondering if both of you spent a lot of time at the light station when you were growing up. Yes, Jeremy. So my family, we did spend a lot of time growing up at the lighthouse. Um, One of my favorite pictures is uh, my aunt and two cousins and myself. And I'm like a little onesie, so itty bitty. And on the front porch of the beach house. So we've spent, you know, countless summers and holidays and um, birthdays. And my dad and his brothers were huge fishermen. So many times down there fishing over the summers. So we spent a lot of time. It's been a very special family home to us. And we, we've, it's been great to be able, very much of a blessing to be able to grow up down there. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you have a lot of, a lot of great memories. Same with you, Mark. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a second home and Amy and I both, we grew up just an hour car ride away from the lighthouse. So it was easy to get to. And uh, we would spend big chunks of the summer down there. Uh, just great as a little kid, you know, growing up and going to the beach and fishing. And, you know, uh, my dad would even come down after work and meet us on the beach. And so we could do a lot of time down here. One thing about the old house, though, uh, my grandma was convinced that because it was at the beach, it didn't need air conditioning. And so our house didn't get air conditioning until 1980. Wow. Yeah. Did it have a nice sea breeze or did it get really hot in there sometimes? Not in July and August. Yeah. (laughs) June's pretty good. June's fine. But you get get to July 4th and it's all all bets are off. 
<laughs> well, I, I understand even here on the New Hampshire seacoast in the, in the summer in July and August, it can be so hot. And I know that sometimes even right by the ocean, it's completely still. You don't always get that breeze. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the downside is when the wind dies. Yeah. Yeah. My next question, uh, either or both of you can can answer this, but uh, I understand a movie was uh, shot there largely right uh, at and around the lighthouse. My Sweet Charlie, uh, 1968. Uh, could you tell me about, about that? Yeah, I think it was 1970. Um, and I'll talk about it because I'm older than Amy. And I actually remember coming to see the movie set. Uh, they were filming during the winter. And uh, Patty Duke and Ed Freeman Jr. were the stars. And it's an interesting story that is... I think important for today's audiences. So if some, someone would like to look it up and see a movie filmed at the lighthouse, uh, my sweet Charlie, it's an interesting message. Uh, it's great. It was way ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patty Duke is this fabulous role. And uh, Ed Friedman jr. He, he wound up playing a lot of different uh, characters throughout his career later on too. He was actually Elijah Muhammad in the Spike Lee, Malcolm X movie. With oh, yeah. Israel, Washington. Yeah. Uh, that was one of his last roles, but great movie. And it kind yeah. of, it kind of shows the house that I grew up in. And that's what I like about it is because it, it looks the way my grandparents set it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what the house looked like back then. It, uh, they had done a lot of updating the house, but uh, now uh, the Maxwell's house and our house, both I think look a lot more original than they used to. So we've, we've done a lot of work on these houses and they just look fantastic. On the inside, at least. Yeah, I said 1968 for the movie. You said 1970. I just looked it up on the Internet Movie Database. It did come out in 1970. I I was real little, but I remember coming down and my dad had to meet with him for something. So he brought me for some reason. Yeah. Did you see uh, actual uh, filming with with the stars? No, 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 no. It was brutally cold and it was wet and they had all this equipment in the yard and, and we were just... I don't even know why they needed us there, but my dad was talking to him about something. Yeah. How about you, Amy? Do you have any memories of that movie? I was only four years old when it was yeah. being filmed, Jeremy. So I was a little young, but I've definitely seen it. And to Mark's point, it would be a great movie to be seen at this point. Um, yeah. That sounds really interesting. Uh, I don't know if it's available. You don't happen to know, do you? If It's, available. it's chopped up on YouTube. And okay. 10 ep- it's 10 episodes on YouTube. You can watch 90% of it. Okay. Sounds like a lot of work, but it might be worth, uh, no, worth the effort. No. Unfortunately, I'm really good at YouTube. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned the Fresnel lens earlier, third order Fresnel lens that was in the lighthouse. Can you remind me when was that removed? And I understand it has a place of honor at the Smithsonian's Museum of American History. Yes, it does, Jeremy. It was removed in 1933. And this is actually the third of the lenses that was in the Bolivar Lighthouse. And this one was installed in 1907. So speaking to Mark's point, this was the one um, that J.P. Brooks, that he turned by hand in the 1915 storm. Mm. And um, this light could be seen from 17 miles away. And if you go to the Smithsonian, she's a sight to see. I took my twin daughters back in October for the first time for them to see it. And um, she's located in the National Museum of American History. Mm-hmm. She measures 64 inches by 48 inches. And she's in a beautiful glass beehive shape. Yeah. So um, for anybody that goes to Smithsonian, please stop by the National Museum of American History and see her. Yeah. 
it's been quite a while since I've been there, and I don't think that was on display there when I when I was there in the '90s last time. Uh, so I need to get back to see that display. But uh, the Fresnel lenses are the jewels of the lighthouses, and it's a lot of them, as you probably know, were destroyed. Fairly small percentage are still in the lighthouses, and some are in museums. And I'm really glad that one was was saved. Let's uh, talk about the uh, more recent history of uh, your efforts to preserve the place. First of all, what exactly led to uh, the formation of the Bolivar Point Lighthouse Foundation? I know, again, the lighthouse was in your, your family's uh, in private ownership for, for quite a few years, but then uh, the foundation was formed as a nonprofit in 2015. Why was that done? So after Hurricane Ike, we had further deterioration of the cupola and pieces of cast iron that were falling. And so my cousin, Michael Maxwell, Mark, they started the foundation, as you mentioned, in 2015, so that we could address the restoration and preservation of the lighthouse. So this nonprofit, um, it's a 501c3, and we're, I'm thankful to our cousins, Michael and uh, Mark, that they got this foundation rolling in 2015 for us to be able to preserve and restore the lighthouse. Yeah, well, I think it's a, it's a great thing. And uh, I believe you had one or maybe it's more than one uh, condition assessments done. Is that right? We have. So on June 25th in 2018, the foundation contracted Hudson Gallagher and Sparks Engineering um, to conduct a conditions assessment of the lighthouse to prioritize and provide an estimate for repairs and research um, and restoration. And we that was estimated at $2.5 million back in 2018. Um, we recently have had, um, we're working on a master plan and currently working on another conditions assessment um, with Architexas and Larry Ursic, um, a great historical architect. We definitely have the same problems, you know, further deterioration. And we have a very rough estimate right now of about $3.5 million that we're at at this point. What is the number one aspect that is needs to be addressed probably before anything else? We need to remove the top and fabricate a new replacement. Mm-hmm. So um, in terms of just restoration, the, the dome, the cupola, it's definitely at risk. You know, it's it was recommended that it be removed as soon as possible. So that is definitely our most critical piece that needs to be yeah. addressed in this restoration effort is the top. Yeah. And we're talking about not just the the dome or, or cupola at the very top, but the uh, the entire lantern level of the lighthouse, basically where the, the light is the and the what would be called the lantern gallery, the deck around it. That yeah, the, the watch room down to the gallery deck. Okay. Now, so, all yeah. that's going to have to come off. Yeah, and yes. be refabricated. And are there any plans to do something with uh, the old part uh, parts that are removed? Yeah, ab- absolutely. It would look great as a static display on the ground. You know, we can kind of piece it back together. Yeah, yeah. We'd love to have it in like a visitor center. Yeah. Um, where the public could access and see the original, like Mark said, watch room and lantern. What are the ultimate plans for the light station when restoration is completed? What are you aiming towards with this restoration? Well, Jeremy, for the first time when the restoration is complete, we would like to open the lighthouse to the public for the very first time in history. So, um, you know, obviously it'd be under, you know, controlled access certain days, certain times, but we absolutely want to open her up to the public and share her. And we'd love to have an educational curriculum where children could learn more. There's so much history there. Jane Long, the mother of Texas, was there. In addition, you know, just to all the robust history of the storms, the lighthouse keepers and the tower, we'd love to have an educational curriculum. We'd love to have a visitor center um, where tourists could come 
you know, and, and see and just experience and uh, really just understand this robust history of, of the Bolivar Lighthouse. Having it open to the public for the first time in its history would be incredibly meaningful for a lot of longtime Southeast Texas residents who just love this lighthouse. Oh, it sounds sounds fantastic. Uh, if, if I could, I'd buy, a, buy my ticket right now. Uh, so I have a two-part question for either or both of you. Uh, have you had problems with major storms there in recent years? You talked about the historic hurricanes. Uh, and part two of that question is, is the lighthouse threatened at all by any kind of erosion or flooding that occurs there? Well, yeah, so I'll take this one. Hurricane Ike in 2008 brought a storm surge that was equivalent to 1915 or 1900. It was eight feet of water under our houses, uh, probably about six feet in the lighthouse itself. Massive surge. It destroyed thousands of houses on the Bolivar Peninsula and really changed the peninsula. I mean, it took a good two to three years to get back to near normal, probably much like what South Louisiana, Lake Charles area, Cameron dealing with now uh, from their storms. But uh, it's going to be continuously threatened uh, by hurricanes. We had a high tide from tropical storm beta last year that flooded the entire yard and it had water up to the, you know, to the door, doorstep of the lighthouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was just a tropical storm. High winds, we're constantly afraid of something catastrophic happening to the top of the lighthouse. Yeah. If we don't get the top removed and a steel deck put down to hold it in while we do the fundraising for restoration, something catastrophic could happen. And that would just, that's the worst case scenario for us. Right. It would have to be sealed as quickly as possible. Something like that happen. Because- it'll need a, it'll need a temporary steel deck as soon as the top comes off. Yeah. Yeah. But hopefully can get the uh, top replaced before anything like that happens. So historically, the lighthouse had black and white horizontal bands. I assume that same color scheme will, will be retained. Is that right? Absolutely. That is our um, absolute hope. That is exactly what we'd like to do is we would like to take the tower back to her original beauty 150 years ago of the black and white horizontal bands. So that is absolutely our goal. Good. Always best to keep them looking as they did historically. So uh, let's talk about fundraising. How are you raising funds for restoration? So we're in the process of applying and pursuing grant money. Um, We're definitely going to be hosting some upcoming fundraisers um, on Bolivar Peninsula, Galveston, and the surrounding areas. We have a website that you can go to today um, and make a contribution. And our website is www.bolivarpointlighthouse.org. Mm-hmm. So you could definitely go to our website and make a donation. And additionally, we are going to have a lighthouse passport stamp, which we are super excited about. We'll soon have this official, um, again, Bolivar Point Lighthouse stamp. We saw the prototype last week um, and are so excited that we'll be included in this program. Um, since the lighthouse, unfortunately, is not open to the public at this point, we will be going to the website, USLHS, and um, speaking how just um, how this will be made available that you can get the stamp until um, we're in a place where the, the tower is safe and secure and we can open it to the public and, and readily um, stamp passports. But we're super excited to have that. Yeah. Well, it ties it in nicely to the U.S. Lighthouse Society. I'm really glad to hear you're getting a, an official passport stamp. And uh, probably some uh, U.S. Lighthouse Society tours will be visiting you in the future as well, I, I think, right? We do. We have actually one Easter Sunday, 1030 in the morning. There's a tour of 27 from the U.S. LHS that will be coming so uh-huh. we're to host them and we'll be officially stamping their passports. So we're excited. Yeah. 
that is really exciting. I know that people are going to love it. I wish I was part of that tour. I'm supposed to go on a, an Ireland tour this summer, but I am not going on the uh, the tour, unfortunately, to to Texas. I would love to, and I will. I will see you there sometime. I promise. So, uh, if you mentioned the website, BolivarPointLighthouse.org. Let me ask you, uh, you said people can donate through the website, right? There's a mechanism on there for them to donate. Is that right? Correct. There is. Do you need volunteers for anything at this point? We do. We would love, there's a place on our website where um, we would love to have people sign up for volunteers. We're going to have a host of committees that we're starting to work on and how they can assist with fundraising and, and efforts. So we definitely will need volunteers. We'd also love people to share, you know, go onto our Facebook page. Um, Mm -hmm. Share our Facebook page and, you know, also going back to our website, share our website. We just definitely want to get the word out about the foundation, our nonprofit, um, and what we're doing to restore this special piece of Texas history. Yeah. So the Facebook page is Bolivar Point Lighthouse on Facebook. All right. Mm -hmm. And you'll see our official nonprofit logo. So you'll know it's the official nonprofit page. Correct. For the Bolivar Point Lighthouse. Okay. So for now, if people uh, before, you know, before the place is restored and opened up for tours, if people want to visit there and just get a good look at the lighthouse, get some photos, what do you recommend to them? Absolutely. There's a couple of great places that they can take um, wonderful photos of the lighthouse. Um, One is in front of Highway 87, on Highway 87, in front of the lighthouse. The end of Everett Road, right there at the back gate, is a great place to take photos. Um, Another lovely spot is Frenchtown Road. And um, a wonderful place of beautiful pictures would be from Fort Travis. So there are a couple of places um, that you can get some magnificent photos um, of the lighthouse and the property. Good. How has the local community there around uh, Point Bolivar, uh, Bolivar Point, I should say, how has the local community responded to the idea of restoring the lighthouse? I will tell you extreme excitement. Seeing the lighthouse restored is something everyone wants to see. Since I stepped in the role in July, you know, I've been planning myself in the community and getting to know everyone on Bolivar Peninsula and Galveston and, and the, the, in the region and even the local county and state officials. It's, it's been really exciting just to see the passion. Everyone is thrilled that we're doing this and they're ready to see it happen. So there's a lot of excitement, Jeremy, that um, we're endeavoring taking on this project and the endeavor ahead. Well, I, I think people everywhere see lighthouses as kind of a focal point of the communities. I'm sure it means a lot to the people around there. It so, is a very recognizable landmark uh, for anyone who's traveled between mm-hmm. Galveston and Beaumont. I'm sure. And a uh, recognizable landmark, partly because it's so tall, you must be able to see it for miles. I have uh, one more question for you. Okay. This is for both of you. You can uh, fight fight amongst yourselves as far as who's going to take it first, but this one's for bonus points. Okay. What has been your favorite part personally of your involvement? Uh, and that is this involvement in your, your cases uh, really has been uh, for your whole lifetimes. What's been your favorite part of your involvement with Bolivar Point Lighthouse? Just meeting so many incredible people of Bolivar and Galveston in the region, and they all have a story. You know, whether it's my great uncle was on that train in the storm of 1900 and he got off and he walked two miles and he survived that storm or, you know, someone else that we've heard their great grandmother, she was three years old when they swam her in, she survived the storm of 1900 taking shelter in the lighthouse or people that have come and said, my dad used to ride his bicycle onto the ferry boat and come over there. There's just, everyone has a story and it's just everyone. There's such a love for it. 
because it's just, it's the first thing you see when you come on the peninsula. It's the last thing you're seeing as you're getting on the ferry boat to go back home. Mm-hmm. It's been incredible to hear so many wonderful stories, personal stories and what it means to them. In addition, I'll say just in doing this, the 3D Matterport scan is on our website. And that's for anybody that wants to go and take a virtual tour to take it to the top. That's just been an incredible thing that we it's on our website to see. And then again, having this lighthouse passport stamp and being a part of USLHS has just been some of the best parts about coming into this position and as we've come so far. So, Well, that's great. I'm glad you mentioned the virtual tour. People should check that out at bolliverpointlighthouse.org. They can actually kind of, uh, you actually can walk up the stairs in the lighthouse as part of the tour, right? Um, really cool. It was really, really nicely done. So Mark, how about you, your favorite part or parts of your involvement with the lighthouse? It's been a real transformation of what I believe is possible for the lighthouse. Growing up here, it was just a static, stable thing. It was never going to go anywhere. And as time marches on, that is just not the case. And if we don't do something, it's not always going to be here. And that would be a tragedy. Amy's first cousin, my second cousin, Mike Maxwell, came to me and said that they were ready to get something going, I was all, all on board uh, because, you know, Mike, Mike had the idea to make this nonprofit start. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly important. Uh, if we don't do it, no one's going to do it. Failure is not an option, but we need lots of help. And, you know, to think that we can get this thing restored to the point where it has glass in it, it's painted, it's safe. People can go up in it. That's incredible. And it's something I never would have thought possible 20 years ago. I would not have think that would have ever been possible. And now we're looking at the plan to make it happen. Sounds, sounds good to me. And, you know, somebody, uh, some wise person said, uh, where there's a will, there's a way. And you've certainly got the will. Uh, there's no doubt about that. And uh, I, uh, being uh, representing the U.S. Lighthouse Society in this case, I'll certainly say that we'll do what we can to help publicize your your efforts with this podcast and beyond. So it's a great project. I'm so glad you're looking forward to the future with plans to restore the light station and to improve public access. It's all so important. And I thank you so much for spending this time with me today. I know our listeners will be rooting for you to complete restoration. Lots of us are looking forward to visiting in the future with U.S. Lighthouse Society tours or on our own. Uh, really looking forward to it. Thank you so much, Amy and Mark. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeremy. Again, go to bolliverpointlighthouse.org to learn more about the Bolivar Point Lighthouse Foundation. You can make a donation or buy a t-shirt with their logo to help them with their efforts. I'm always so happy when private owners of lighthouses work to make these places accessible to the public. It's not something they have to do. I really enjoyed speaking with Amy and Mark. I wish them all the best. Next, we're going to have a Be a Lighthouse segment. Lighthouses were built to save lives and property, which is also something that first responders in our communities do every day. In a sense, our firefighters, police, Coast Guard, and other first responders are serving as lighthouses to keep us safe. On Tuesday, February 1st, first responders rescued three fishermen after their fishing boat sank off Situate, Massachusetts. Shortly after 2.30 that afternoon, a local woman called 911 and reported seeing a fishing boat overturn and sink with black smoke filling the air. 
she saw that the three fishermen were clinging to debris to stay afloat. The water was 42 degrees and the men were in the water for 45 minutes. I want to thank our listener, Ben Thompson, for suggesting the story for this segment. I spoke with Situate Fire Chief John Murphy about the rescue. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking this morning with Situate Fire Chief John Murphy, and this is for one of our Be a Lighthouse segments. And certainly firefighters, first responders of all kinds, police, our uh, lighthouses in our communities. I can't say enough about the the work you guys do every day, but we're going to talk about a specific thing that happened a couple of days ago. But first, let me just thank you for being with me today, Chief Murphy. Thanks yeah, so much. Thanks. thanks for having me, Jeremy. I understand it's been a busy season for you. You've been involved in a, a few rescues uh, in the water. Yeah, that's correct, Jeremy. Starting back in last since last June, we've had four uh, marine emergencies that we were called to for those in peril at the sea. Um, unfortunately, the first two resulted in uh, in one death in each incident. We had a woman who fell off a boat in heavy seas in our North River. And the second one involved someone jumping off a bridge that apparently wasn't a great swimmer. Water was cold and he had drowned as well. So uh, two drownings is um, very sad to see in one year. And they were only a couple of months apart. And then in September, some severe thunderstorms came through with a couple of paddleboarders. Um, outside the harbor along the coast, about a half mile out. And uh, fortunately, that was a good outcome. They were basically one paddle boarder had her cell phone. We tracked her cell phone uh, with GPS and a 911 system. Mm-hmm. Her, um, torrential rain, lightning, thunder, winds, uh, the whole gamut. And then we had uh, the second paddle boarder. Uh, she didn't know where she was. Her paddle board went by her. And we thought the worst. And eventually someone from the shore heard someone yelling. But long story short, this woman clinged on to a, um, a lobster pot, able to hold on long enough for us to get to her um, between the, the Situate Police Department boat, Situate Fire and Harbor Mass to have a combination boat. And the um, and we were out there for those two rescues. And uh, they were they were brought back. But those first uh, incidents, all four people, no one was wearing life jackets. You know, yeah. The safety equipment we have is there for a reason. And especially when the water's colder, and after those incidents, it's been, you know, really quiet. And until uh, this past Tuesday afternoon, we were called for um, a possible boat sinking. There was mm-hmm. a woman called it in, the only call, which is surprising. Apparently a 55-foot fishing vessel out of Gloucester had three fishermen on it. We got a 911 call at 2.35 in the afternoon that there was a possible boat sinking. So we dispatched our fire harbor master boat, the city police boat, and also the marshal, the town south of us, their harbor master was en route. We all got to the um, scene within a minute or so of each other. So upon our arrival, I was on the white boat, the um, Harbor Master Fireboat. Didn't see anything until we got about 200 yards away, Jeremy, and we saw something black in the water that looked like hose. So we got as we got closer, we did see this debris, and one one fisherman raised his hand. He needed help. So we mm-hmm. yeah, there, there was a sinking. There was some debris here. He was clinging on for life, and as we got closer, we actually uh, found the other two fishermen clinging on for the life as well. The water is about 42 degrees. The seas are about four to six foot seas. And the diesel fuel, the boat sank right under them. So the diesel fuel was percolating above them. So it made it for a tough environment for these guys to survive. I don't know how they did it. Yeah. 45 minutes with diesel fuel all around them, heavy seas and cold water. So we executed our operations, trying to throw, get throw bags close to them. The Marshfield Hopmaster attempted three times. Um, these guys are so cold. They really wouldn't let go of the, the flotation, you know, they were that cold that they really couldn't self, self-rescue self at all. So yeah. able to get fairly close to the first uh, first fisherman, 
got him on board the white uh, Havmaster fireboat. These guys were all big gentlemen. They were all at least 250 to 300 pounds. So very challenging getting in the boat under these conditions. And we got the first victim in, the first uh, fisherman. And then um, we were backed up close again to um, the second fisherman. We got him in the back door. We got him in. And then the third victim, as we were going over to that last fisherman, the central police boat was able to pull up and get close to him. They eventually got him on board. We stood by till everybody was loaded on the boats. We moved into inside of the boat, started dressing them down, got them some blankets and some, and some jackets. And it was about a 25-minute ride back to our beacon of hope, our central lighthouse. And as we approached mm-hmm. harbor, we um, we called for three ambulances to be on standby. We got them on the ambulances. They got transported to the South Shore Hospital. And... Um, They've all been released. They, they were treated for a couple of days and doing well. So a lot of things lined up in their favor for this to be a rescue and not a recovery. Absolutely. That's an amazing 42 degree water. It is uh, incredible that they survived that with no survival suits again or, or life jackets or anything. That's especially phenomenal. So another reminder of how important uh, life jackets are, obviously. Yeah, we agree. The, uh, no life jackets. No, obviously something happened fast. Or, yeah, and that they were dragging for clams, big hose down there was agitates the sand and gets the clams loose, and then there's a rake behind it. Mm-hmm. So they had a beam seed. They were, I think, I believe they were towing from the starboard side, and so I think they were just sort of leaning that way. And at the same time, bad luck happens that that rake caught up in something in the bottom and just pulled that boat down quick. I guess it went down in 30 seconds, according to the the witness who mm-hmm. put it in. So um, fishermen said they were just thrown to the water right away. So yeah. something extremely fast. Um, and the boats, actually, we went out the day after to survey the boat with uh, commercial divers that um, were hired to go down. The boat is sitting on the bottom straight up. And actually, the outriggers actually come above the water at low tide. So still leaking a lot of fuel. Actually, it was leaking a lot of fuel. We went out there and the divers actually basically booked up all it. They, they clogged up all the scuppers and the fuel fills and all that so we can minimize the fuel leakage. But we probably lost about a thousand gallons of fuel. Hopefully, most of it's going to dissipate. But there were some estuaries nearby that that were likely uh, affected. We Again, we had DEP on our boat. We surveyed the whole area and um, by drone and also by boat. And uh, um, from what I've heard, next week, they're going to start salvage operations, depending on the weather, probably Monday or Tuesday. And again, this this was called in by a local woman, right, who actually saw the, the men in trouble. Correct, correct. It's part of Situated Peninsula, and right behind it, the next hill over is Marshall over the bridge, and she must have had a home right there in the hill that she could oversee the ocean. And she had saw this boat going back and forth several times, uh, fishing throughout the day. They were going back and forth parallel to the beach. Again, when we found the boat, it's about three quarters of a mile off the beach. So she actually see it. And then all of a sudden she saw something going wrong, a puff of smoke, which we you know, would assume the exhaust going in the water. She had thought, oh, it must've been called in already, but I'm gonna call in anyway. And fortunately she did, cause she was the only caller, which is, which is sort of crazy. But part of the lesson is too, if you see something out there, it doesn't look right. Let us know. Call 911. Let us know. We'll investigate. If it's nothing, we all go home. But something like this, if she didn't call, this would have been a recovery for, for many days. Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So in a sense, she was being a lighthouse uh, as well as you guys. Uh, it takes uh, both uh, both aspects to uh, to make this a success. Right. She started the whole emergency process by calling it in uh, and yeah. giving it a decent location. And, um, you know, we, then we put our resources on land and interviewed her. Where did she last see the boat? What location it was? Because we couldn't see the debris until we got close upon it. And then the drone footage you see, the drone got there just as the boats did. So, you know, we were able to identify that. And fortunately, that hose floated. They had literally the jackets and sweatshirts they were wearing that day. That was it. 
um, a great partnership between Situate Fire, Situate Police, Situate Harbor Master, and the Marshfield uh, Harbor Master as well was instrumental in, in uh, assisting us in this rescue. Well, a big thank you to you for being with me today. And uh, just thank you uh, so much for everything you and your fire department and fire departments like yours all over the country, everything you do for us every day. Uh, again, uh, we have the segment in this podcast called Be a Lighthouse and lighthouses save lives, of course, and uh, are symbols of hope in our communities and the work that you do serves those same purposes every every day. And we appreciate it so much. Thank you so much, uh, Chief John Murphy, for being with me today. You're welcome. Have a great day. The motto of the old U.S. life-saving service was, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back, meaning that you had to go out to rescue anyone in need of assistance, even if it was at great personal risk to yourself. And of course, the motto of the Coast Guard is Semper Paratus, meaning always ready. Firefighters are very much in that great tradition of first responders in times of danger and emergency. But like lighthouse keepers, they don't see themselves as heroic. Edward Croker, who was fire marshal for the Fire Department of New York, once said, quote, When a man becomes a fireman, his greatest act of bravery has been accomplished. What he does after that is all in the line of work, unquote. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about tours, the research catalog, the online shop, the passport program, and everything else the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. Donations and memberships help to support this podcast. A big thank you to the Society's members and volunteers, as well as to Executive Director Jeff Gales and the Board of Directors for their support of this podcast. On next week's episode, we'll be returning to New York for a talk with Sarah Wasberg-Johnson, Director of Exhibits and Outreach at the Hudson River Maritime Museum, which operates Rondout Lighthouse. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.